Welcome to the OpEx Effect, a joint podcast from Excess Returns and Spot Gamma, where we take a deep dive into the world of options and the flows they generate in the markets. Join Brent Kachuba, Jack Forehand, and me, Justin Carboneau, every month on the Options Exploration Week as we look at the major developments in the options world and how they impact all of our portfolios. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital. Brent, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, really excited. The first one went pretty well, so uh, we're trying to build on that success. Yeah, we almost, we almost cracked the top 100 on Apple Podcasts. I think we got up to like 120 or something. So uh, if, you know, any, anybody who's out there, if you like and subscribe this time or whatever you're supposed to say as a YouTuber to people, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll make it this time. You know, I, I'm new to the podcast and charting and all that sort of stuff, but uh, we seem to do very well in Italy, which would make my grandfather happy. So <laughs> maybe that's his tease for us to take a trip. Yeah, yeah. Always like with those those other countries. Like I always like take a screenshot of it for like posterity whenever we make it to like one of the top ones. Because you know you're, it's very hard to be like top five in the U.S. But on some of these secondary countries, you can do it. So it's like, oh, I got the top five, um, top number four podcast in Paraguay or something. That's it. <laughs> Where's my my grandfather would be very upset for you calling Italy a secondary country. But I was <laughs> well, secondary to the U.S. chart, I guess. Uh, the U.S. chart is right, by so far. That's all over. <laughs> I was proud of the, my, my little joke was going to be, I'm surprised it wasn't France, which is the home of the derivative, you know, uh, as opposed to Italy. But. Oh, that is true. Yeah, well, maybe anybody who's out there in France this time, you know, maybe we'll, uh, we'll be able to get it on the charts this time. Uh, so, yeah, so in general, our, our goal with this for anybody who's new to us is, you know, we, we wanted to do this for longer term investors. You know, obviously there's, there's a lot in the options market for shorter term investors, but also those of us that are longer term investors like me have recognized that this stuff has a huge impact on what's going on day to day in the markets. And so we did this podcast as a way for Brent to help educate us around what's going on. And, and in each episode, you know, we're, we start on every time with some educational stuff where Brent can kind of teach us about a concept about what's going on in the options world. You know, then we'll do something about the current expiration. We've got the uh, November expiration coming up here. Um, and, and then at the end, you always find like an interesting area. And I, like last time I learned what Ozembic, uh, where, where that word comes from. So uh, hopefully you've got another tidbit for me uh, towards the end here where we can learn from. You know, um... I have a couple of tidbits, but I'm going to have to build in a little uh, trivia. I think that will be a good little hook for people here to get us that top 100. Yeah, yeah. as long as you don't ask me any questions, because I, I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, don't ask me like what an iron condor is or something, because I, I definitely won't be able to answer. Uh, you, me. <laughs> you know, to, to your point, I think a lot of the stuff that we write on, on a daily basis is, is focused in the short term time frame, more of the day to day, typically we'll see you know, 30 days on a cycle is typically what I see. And so I also like doing this because it gives me the opportunity to zoom out just a little bit. And, uh, and like you said, speak to people who have a little bit of a longer term lens and, uh, and let people know what the options market may be telling them or, or how the options market is informing them of, of future price moves. So I really like this as it, as it helps me to sort of level set my, my time frame, so to speak. Yeah. So to so we'll start off today with zero DTE, cause that, that's been really interesting. You know, that's been, it's been all over the news. Um, but I, to be honest with you, when it first came out, I didn't even know zero T DTE was a thing. Like I didn't know there were options that expired every day. And, you know, as part of learning about this, I learned that there are, but maybe it's, it's just to give us kind of a set of how this works. Can you just talk about zero DT in general, like where it came from? Like, what are the options that actually expire every day? Is it just S and P 500, you know, the growth of it over time, just some of the high level stuff. Sure. So the zero DT stands for zero days to expiration and, um, the, Zero days to expiration is effective in the S&P 500. So that's the SPX index options, spiders, QQQs. Um, and so what that means is every single day, there's now an expiration. This was launched in September of last year, 2022. And before that, we had expirations three days a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then before that, they had Mondays. And so it's been sort of this evolution over the last couple of years of an increase in the number of days of expiration. Uh, options or the number of expirations listed uh, each week. Historically, you know, the third Friday expiration was the was the biggest expiration. That's where a lot of people traded. But now we sort of split that up with these daily expirations. Um, and then the single stocks like Tesla and Apple, there's an expiration now every single Friday. You know, there's some scuttlebutt that maybe they want to make zero DTE options, so to speak, in, in single stock. But I don't think that's uh, pending. I don't think it's that close. Um. Hmm. What, what we've seen is that the adoption of zero DTE, you know, it increased very sharply. And that's what this chart shows you. Uh, zero DTE expiration. So if an option is traded on, if there was a Wednesday expiration option, 
And what was the volume for that Wednesday expiration is what you see in the beginning of this chart. Um, and what you can see is that we were, you know, 25-ish to 30% of the volume was zero DTE uh, about a year ago. And towards the end of last year and start of this year, we've been in the 45 to 50% of zero DTE flow in the S&P 500 index options, right? I think the highest so, so, uh, so far this year has been 58%. And there's a lot of attention around, you know, what may happen because of the uh, explosion of zero DTE trading um, and, you know, what tail risks might be embedded in this. And that's why there's so much attention, you know, associated with it. Um, I'll tell you just sort of the, the high level view is there's this idea that, you know, there's a tail risk embedded in here. Um, JP Morgan got a lot of attention around this. Nope, you know, they called it Volmageddon is, is hiding, kind of lurking on the surface zero, due to the zero DT options. Um, and then on the other side, a couple of weeks ago, we had a presentation from the CBO that came out that just basically said, hey, you know, nothing to see here and look the other way. Um, but this is the CBO cash cow, CBOE options exchanges where the SPX index options are listed. And so this volume of, you know, call it 1.5 million contracts a day of zero DT volume in the SPX, it's a cash cow for them. If you want to see a stock chart, I should have included in here. Look at the CBO stock chart, CBOE. Uh, it is, it's like a hockey stick. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and probably one of the better stocks to own, I guess, if the market is going to crash because the volumes only pick up there and, and make them more money. So, uh, you know, good, good for them. Uh, kudos for this. At any rate, um, what does it look like on the single stock side? In white here is the zero DT flow. Now, this is a real sawtooth pattern on this chart. Because obviously, you know, when you get to expiration contracts roll, and that's kind of what causes this sawtooth sort of uh, uh, pattern in this chart. But if you look at the general, you know, if you were to imagine a moving average on this chart, you would see that, you know, roughly 35-ish to call it a third, essentially, of stock, individual stocks like Apple, Tesla, Amazon, et cetera, are zero DTE. And what that means is, that, you know, how much of the volume is concentrated in the next Friday expiration. So if you hear zero DTE in a single stock, People are talking about the Friday expiration option. That's the closest, you know, next near-term expiration. And what you can see is that we peaked in volume around July or August, uh, where the markets had a real sharp rally. And then as markets got a little chippier into October, um, you can see that the zero DT volumes pulled back a little bit. And there's been a little bit of a trend from, call it 35% down to, you know, maybe a little bit closer to 25%. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting thing I'll, I'll touch on in one second here. Um, what do, um, what do people use these for? So, yeah. you know, uh, it's a great question. So um, what I think they're being used for primarily is a replacement for equity futures hedges. So in the past, you would have people buy futures to hedge portfolios. So institutional investors or even some high frequency trading shops, you trade the future as a, as a way, the e-minis as a way to express that the market was going to go up or down or hedge your risk up or down. And I think that what has happened now is that people have substituted these zero DTE contracts uh, for those underlying futures hedges. And the reason you do that is because there's a fixed cost with these contracts. They trade in cash. They're usually pretty cheap, right, to put on in terms of dollar notional terms. And it starts to reduce some of your transactions. And, and transaction costs are a, a primary expense for HFT shops uh, and or you know, market makers or dealers that want to hedge. And also built into these contracts is a gamma hedge. So essentially what that means is that you can put on kind of, you know, one zero DT call option. And if the market rips by 10%, you're gaining a lot of equity exposure to the upside as a result of the gamma of these contracts, right? Because a call increases in value as the stock market goes up or as the S&P goes up, or if you buy a put and the market goes down, that also increases in value. So it gives you a leveraged hedge, um, which also makes it, sometimes more effective, uh, more effective means for hedging your portfolio against a little bit larger moves. Um, you have a little more dexterity, so to speak, in the way that you're hedging your portfolio on a very short-term basis. And so I think that's where the bulk of this volume is being traded. Um, in this, in this uh, there was recently, last week, there was a presentation uh, on the options market at, at Bloomberg in New York, and, and I went down to that and had a couple of interesting tidbits that I want to include on to your question. The CBO says that 25, let's just say 30%, excuse me, a little typo there. 25 to 30% of zero DT is retail. That's what their estimate is. Um, but retail can mean different things. Like, you know, I think a lot of us, when we think of retail, we think of, you know, a, a, a young person sitting in their parents' basement or on their iPhone, like slinging trades in. 
But embedded in that is someone that may have, you know, $10, $20 million account that trades on their own, um, you know, with like an interactive brokers, right? So the realm of what a retail trader is can can vary quite a bit. And to that point, JP Morgan, and, and it was interesting because the SIBO guy and JP Morgan guy were bickering a little bit about this. And they, they say that's 5% is retail if you look at the behavior of trades and, and, and the like. So look, you know, let's just say 25% or less is retail. And then tied to that, there was two retail brokers that showed up, Schwab and E-Trade. They said that, you know, the this advance of zero DT flow, that the headline from them was like, it's pretty much meaningless from a risk perspective. It's not really something that we're concerned about. It's not something that is, you know, overtaking our, uh, uh, our trading environment. The Schwab guy commented that 90% of their zero DT flow is long calls because people are worried that people are, that individual retail traders are shorting a lot of options and that there's risk associated with that, right? Um, but they basically said, look, you know, there's been an uptick in zero DT flow. It's minor. They don't see any risk to themselves as an entity. And they didn't really feel like there was a lot of market risk there either. So, you know, again, this idea that the, one of the key things is to why I think a lot of this is institutional volume is not only that 25% number, but the reason I think it's hedging flows because, you know, Again, this flow was adopted or, or offered by the exchanges in September uh, of last year. And almost immediately, the percentage of volume in the SP 500 that was zero DT went to uh, 50%, roughly 45 to 50%. And then we've stayed there over the long term, right? So if there was some new type of strategy that was unlocked through zero DTE or this new source of alpha that was unlocked by zero DT, you would expect to see that volume meaningfully increase. Uh, but it's really staying stable over the last several months. The other thing to note is that anytime you see kind of exogenous risk come into the market, um, like March of 2023 was an obvious one because, uh, and you can see that in here, um, when the bank crisis sort of set up or, or you know, these unknown, I call them known unknowns, right? Uh, banks are starting to go down. SBB went down while other banks go down. You know, there's risk here. Or even recently we had, you know, the 10 year was threatening 5%. Um, Traders back away from the zero DTE options, right? Focus becomes more on what we call be like Vega trading or tail risk hedging. And then suddenly, you know, the options market shifts from this very narrow kind of, you know, one day view of things to, hey, you know, we have uh, larger term risks to worry about. And that's where you see these big dips in the zero DTE order flow. So, you know, I, I think when you, when you just sort of give me the TLDR and this sort of stuff, or if I give you all the TLDR and this sort of stuff, um, I think that a lot of it is substitutions for uh, more expensive uh, hedges, meaning, you know, buying shares of stock or buying features of the hedge. You just buy zero DT options and and people that manage Greeks, so to speak, like that optionality better, uh, the zero DTEs. And then there's this component of retail that I think is largely trying to, to swing it around a little bit, right? They're, they're, they're gambling on some short-term bets. A lot of people like to sell call spreads and put spreads because they think they have a little edge on a daily basis. Um, there is a little bit of this, I don't want to call it gambling component, but I think that is how a lot of us would probably label it. Um, and so, you know, as longer term investors, like a lot of you are, are likely are here, you say, okay, just give me the payload, the TLDR of this. Well, on one side, you have the the, the JP Morgan Volmageddon, which essentially said that, look, you know, these options could cause a major crash in stock markets. They, you know, they threw out numbers that were hundreds of billions of dollars of hedging flows that are required if the market goes limit down. And, you know, if you played out their market scenario that they do in their paper, and if you just Google that term, you can find it. Um, it's this worst case scenario, you know, where all of the ducks would have to line up in this unbelievable row. And and we put a video out disagreeing on this because every time you have a flash, every time you have Volmageddon, you'd have circuit breakers and then that would pause flow. And the other thing is that all these contracts expire at the end of the day, right? So that alleviates or relieves a lot of the pressure that they build up. So even if we if we had a scenario where everybody bought zero DT puts and that caused the market to start to crash because dealers and market makers have to sell futures, well, at the end of the day, those positions would start to get closed out and that would start to alleviate the pressure and that would cause, I think, a pretty big volatile swing back, right? And 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 again, at the end of the day, these options expire um, and in the S&P 500, they're cash settled. So, you know, you have an exchange possibility of cash there, but in spiders and Qs, those are settled uh, with shares of stock. And a lot of people don't want to take delivery on those stock, particularly if you drop, you know, four or 5% intraday. So again, I think there's this impetus to want to have these positions closed by the end of the day. 
Um, and that brings up this other interesting point. I believe that zero DT causes mean reversion by and large in equities. And I have an example that I'll show you. But, but basically what you see is positions get put on at the start of the day in zero DT space. And then those positions are closed towards the end of the day. And so if the stock market's getting bid up because zero DT calls are being bought, and at the end of the day, those calls are being sold, then that can lead to the stock market kind of falling a time in turn and mean reverting quite a bit. Um, what is the impact on volatility? I mean, I guess mean reversion, I mean, I guess if you're swinging back and forth, it could actually increase volatility. But I think most people think, right, it, it reduces volatility. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's my view is that, and, and I try to create this little risk risk graph on your screen here. And, and uh, if you're listening to this, you know, you can check out the YouTube channel and, and download our slide deck to see some of these charts here. So on, on one side, you have Volmageddon, which is JP Morgan says, this is the tail risk. Uh, very high, you know, directional volatility could be driven. That's, you know, really quite scary. And and we said, well, I don't think this is... So if you think, let me explain this another way. If you think back to Volmageddon, right, in 2017, there was a, you know, five, six, seven percent uh, move down over a couple of days because essentially the VIX moved so much that these short volatility products blew up, right? And that caused a couple of days of shock in the market. Um, and the reason I think that was a lasting shock is because those positions and that sort of sell-off cascaded for a few days over time. And I don't think you'd have the same situation with a, a zero DT flash crash because there's not a product here that could just suddenly jump to zero um, and things get get closed out at the end of the day. And that alleviates a lot of the impact. In Volmageddon, no one had that opportunity because the VIX spiked and closed, you know, right at the close, the VIX spiked and that caused this XIV event that, you know, you had this product that was trading at, I think it was like $50 a share. And then it immediately went to zero and wiped out a lot of people. So, you know, that that's the sort of extreme scenario. And then on the other side was the zero, uh, the CBOE came out and said, look, there's nothing to see here. There's no impact on the market. And they're trying to get people to kind of look away, I think, in a way from the risks of this. And, you know, that that didn't make a lot of sense to us either. And, and our, our studies and the way we watch this every day suggest that because it's a hedging substitution, we think that it's fairly low average impact. We think there's a fair amount of mean reversion caused by these products. We've seen a few times where we think it's driving volatility. We'll talk about it in a second. But if you wanted to know what the real risk is, in our view, it's a flash crash is what we see. So if you remember back to the actual flash crash, somebody put in, I think it was 10,000 features and they meant to put in 100 features. I forget exactly what it was. Um, and that led to this really sharp, precipitous sell-off in the middle of the day. And everyone was freaked out because they didn't know what was going on. But then as soon as someone found out or as soon as they figured out, hey, this was a fat finger trade, that's all it was, people started buying the dip like wildfire, right? And then what happened was, uh, I think it was Knight Capital was the entity, and I apologize if this is wrong, but you know they were blown out because of this, and they essentially got uh, bought over by, I believe, Goldman Sachs and Goldman. You know, Goldman. There was a lot of trade busted, I guess, around that flash crash scenario, and I think that would be the similar scenario in this case where you would have zero DT cause some kind of like real sharp intraday move, and then when people start to realize, oh, this was a zero DT driven move, they would be buying the dip with both hands, so to speak. I also think that there's a bigger risk to the upside of a flash crash here than the downside because you don't have the same circuit breakers to the downside, um, to the excuse me, to the upside as you do to the downside, right? So you could have a scenario here where people come out to hedge some, you know, a, a good CPI number or a benign CPI number, whatever it may be, and that would lead to a really massive rally uh, or recovery in the market off of a low because people are buying zero DT calls and that really serves to ramp people up. So to your question on volatility, these things do have the potential to drive a lot of volatility intraday. I don't think they have the the uh, the payload to, to, to deliver multi-day kind of volatility. Um, yeah, because the idea would be once they once they're expiring that day. So unless they had impact on options flows to other options that did not expire that day, then you'd expect it to be largely contained. That, that's 100% correct. And the fact that they they uh, expire, you know, they expire at the end of the day means that whatever built up that pressure is is likely going to, that's going to be relieved. That pressure is going to be relieved because they they all settle at the end of the day, right? And so, you know, people are going to, if I'm if I own some calls and the calls are up, you know, the market's up 5% and I caught that entire move and my calls are up, who knows, 100%, 200%, 300%, something like that. I'm going to sell those things when I have the opportunity, right? Because each hour that ticks by that I get closer to expiration, each minute that I have that gets closer to expiration, you know, I, I run the risk of, uh, of lose, losing that gain, that capital, right? Th these options are very sensitive, particularly in the day to the movement of the market. And so, you know, that is the, that's the incentive to 
to sell out or adjust these positions. Um, and so, you know, if you look at just today, for example, uh, today, again, Monday, November 13th, today we saw the market rally rather sharply from call it 4,400 up to 4,420. So, you know, not quite a 1% move. Um, but what you can see here, this is the example of mean reversion. The zero DTE, um, so let me take one step back. This flow monitors the deltas being traded from options in real time. And the idea is that by monitoring the deltas that are being accrued, we can estimate what dealer hedging flows from all the options that are being traded. So every single time a trade takes place in the SPX or the spiders, we measure how much delta that is. And then we, we add it up on a rolling basis here. So if this blue or purple line goes up, that tells us people are buying calls essentially. And if uh, the blue line goes down, it tells us that people are buying puts. Now, the purple line looks at the flow from all expirations. So every single expiration that exists, we're measuring the delta impact from those contracts. But the teal line measures only zero DTE impact. So what you'll see in this case is that the purple line and the blue line track each other pretty closely, which tells me that today, the bulk of order flow on the day has been zero DTE options trading. That's the most impactful order flow on the day. So what you see here is the market rallied up to 44.20. It, it looked like someone just had a VWAP order in and the market just goes up from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And then all at 12 o'clock, you can see our indicators start to go down. And what that tells us is that at that point, people started selling calls and buying puts in zero DTE space. And what that does is it pressures the market and you can see the options, or the equity market, excuse me, the S&P index, then sells back off, right? And these are, you know, look, 10, 15, 20 handle moves that, you know, in this case, they're not massive moves on this day, but, you know, it's just today's data. Um, and so this is the kind of idea of mean reversion that we see. And if you think about it, it makes sense because, you know, this area here, 4420s, kind of spy 440s, an area where people like to sell calls. And so, again, the market rallies, people sell these calls, the market declines, and then they buy those calls back. Like they, they close out their positions and then the market drifts back up. And it's this kind of ebb and flow or cadence that you see on a normal day. And today's a very normal day, right? There's no news. Uh, uh, interest rates are not really doing anything. CPI tomorrow's problem. It's just, you know, it's a very kind of quiet day. Um, but if you compare that to, to Friday, Friday had a, a kind of a sneaky 1% move higher where we opened around 43.60 and we rallied all the way up to 43, basically 20. And what I highlighted here was areas where you see very sharp bouts of zero DTE call buying. And with that, you can see the equity market here in white, the S&P 500, ramp higher as you see that. So what you see is our, this green line trends higher throughout the day as opposed to today where we started sort of at a high and moved lower, right? Which tells us that people sold into the rally. On Friday, we see that this green line, which is our options indicator, it trends higher the whole day and meaningfully higher, which tells us that people are buying zero DTE calls, you know, all day long. And every time they do that, with every bout that they buy these zero DTE calls, that the, the market pushes higher, right? And so what's interesting about this day is that, you know, we had a, an outsized kind of sneaky 1% move up. Uh, we had 4,400 as, you know, a big resistance area. We kind of just pushed right up into that area. Um, and this was just from Friday's trade as an example of how these flows can, we believe, exacerbate uh, directional moves. And if you go back in time, we did presentations on this where, you know, the most famous example I can think of is there was a CPI print, I think in October of last year, where the print was really ugly and futures sold off three or 4% pre-market. Uh, and as soon as the market opened, someone came out and bought a bunch of zero DTE calls and the equity market rallied 5%, I think it was intraday to close unchanged. Uh, and we document this in, in, a, in, in a couple of our videos. If you see on our YouTube channel, you can check those out. Um, so you can see these places where you know, the, the zero DT leaves these fingerprints of, again, exacerbating uh, market volatility. And, you know, if you were to run this sort of Friday replay on steroids, right, because a bunch of people got together and bought zero DT calls on Reddit or whatever it may be, then you could maybe start to envision the scenario where, hey, we just went up 5% intraday. And why? Well, it's because all these zero DT call buyers came out. Um, but then I would think that that, that that move would unwind or mean revert very quickly, particularly if people go, oh, look, 70% of volume yesterday was zero DT. So we're going to fade that move, right? Um, and that just kind of backs up this idea of a flash crash, either up or down, that that sort of mean reverts after the fact. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've learned in investing is usually when you've got people on one extreme and people on the other extreme, like this this means nothing or this is going to destroy the market. Usually the answer is in the middle, which it sounds like is, is pretty much what it is here. Yeah, and I think that's right. If you, you know, 
these are all cycles, right? So normally uh, there there's 30 day cycles, which you talked about last podcast, and we'll, we'll touch on it again, uh, where that's where the bigger institutions position, right? On the third Friday of every month. And then there's the quarterly expirations where, you know, the biggest of the big position, like the Bridgewaters, and there's that giant JP Morgan collar position, right? On the quarterly expirations. Uh, so there's that cycle. And then there's the December cycle where a lot of people hedge at the end of the year. And then of course, there's the Januaries, uh, which we'll touch on too, where a lot of wealth managers, this is the famous Pelosi trades, right? She puts her calls on or leap calls in for January every year. And so, you know, you have these cycles that play out and the zero DTE is just another part of that cycle, right? Um, it's just a, it's a one day cycle as opposed to a 30 day cycle. Yeah. Now it's probably a good time to switch to that because uh, we talked about this last time. Maybe we should cover it briefly. Again, you've, your first slide you've got in here is this OPEX cycle. So before we talk about what's going on with the current ops, uh, expiration, maybe we should talk a little bit about the cycle first. Yeah. Um, th that's a beautiful segue there, Jack. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we dug in this a little bit. I want to touch on it here just because I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are going to be new and uh, new subscribers that are going to help drive this top 100. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> But the, the, the way that this works in our view is that, you know, we have an options expiration, of course, Friday, we have one here, uh, uh, November, which is a decent sized options expiration. And the way that happens is after options expiration, positions are cleared out. Um, and we think any dealer or market maker hedges associated with those options positions also get unwound. So let's, let's just fast forward to, you know, next week in theory, and a lot of options have expired. Hedges have all been cleaned up. We're all sitting at Thanksgiving. We're getting ready for December. What happens? Well, new positions start to build, right? Okay, I think the market's going to go up for December. I'm going to buy some calls. Oh, the market just went up 3%. I'm going to sell some calls over that, right? So these positions start to build up and hedges start to build up around those positions. And then as we get closer to December expiration, the Greek sort of embedded with these options trades change. It changes hedges flow or hedging flows around those positions. And then we generally start to pin in these options expirations around where the biggest options uh, open interest is, right? And this is kind of a, we call it the OPEX pinning effect. So again, you have after option expiration positions are cleared out, the market starts to move to a, a new area, either higher or lower. Around that area, new open interest is, is uh, built up. Hedging flow builds around this new open interest. And then we hit another expiration, those positions are cleared out and we start the cycle again. Um, so, you know, that happens typically on a 30 day basis. Also on a core lead basis, there's kind of another larger cycle. Uh, and then with the zero DTs, of course, we have kind of like this weird little intraday cycle, which a lot of you listening here, you know, likely aren't, aren't concerned with. Um, here, you know, the red X on the, on the chart you're looking at here details uh, an X at every single monthly expiration. And so again, not every single expiration is this monumentous uh, occasion, but there's a couple that are really significant. You know, we talked about this December 2018. The market low was the Monday after. That was when Mnuchin called the banks and uh, after kind of a, a credit, a little bit of a credit repo crisis. Uh, March of 2020, the low was the Monday after. Also, the the market really started to fall apart after the February 20 uh, expiration. You can see June of last year, for example, uh, and then August of last year. So you can see a lot of these are are turning points, and this is where positions build up. Uh, we did a podcast on excess returns where we really dug into the data around this. So please uh, check out that on your on the excess returns YouTube channel. So, you know, in this case here, we had options, October expiration. And then you can see there's been a really big rally in, in, in markets here into this November expiration. And, and, you know, so why should that matter to you if you're a longer term holder of, of equities or if you have a longer term view? Um, this here, this chart, you know, we've marked all the VIX expirations and uh, equity expirations on this chart, along with a couple of key kind of macro indicators. And what's interesting is that a lot of times you see the VIX expiration, particularly when the VIX has been higher, right? In the 15 to 20 area, it builds up a little more volatility. And I think that has more of an effect on markets. And so if you look at, you know, we did the uh, last podcast um, of this episode on Monday before uh, October expiration and, and the market took a pounding after that, right? Now, as we sit here, it's basically unchanged uh, month over month, but we're down, you know, what, three to 5%. Um, and if you look back at the data, it was the morning of, uh, of VIX expirations when the market fell apart. Um, and, and then you had FOMC, you know, in here as well, and the market just careened, right? And we went down to 4,100. Um, and so you could really see how this VIX expiration kind of pulled the plug a little bit on this equity market rally that was going into October when we sold off really hard. What's interesting about that is we have 
is more magnitude here into this November expiration, but we've had a significant rally. Call positions have really built up. We're going into CPI tomorrow, VIX expiration Wednesday, and there's been a lot of significant movement here in markets leading into this expiration. So what's happened is we have the buildup of a lot of large call positions, and, and I'll just touch on that now. Um, shown here is the uh, call deltas in orange and, and put deltas in blue. And the reason we measure by deltas, is it just shows us roughly what we think the options equivalent in stock is for these positions. And as you can see here, there's, again, for the S&P, Spiders, Russells combined, um, NASDAQ as well in there, uh, there's a lot more calls expiring than puts. So in theory, the, the dealers have to hedge out those call positions. Um, but then when you compare this expiration to, no, to December, you can see it's about half the size, right? December is a giant expiration in the index complex. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so this is a decent size November options expiration. But what's more interesting is that you look at single stock side, single stocks in this case are purple single stock and then teal in the, is, is puts. Um, you can see there's a massive uh, imbalance here between equity calls, so like the size of Tesla, Apple, NVIDIA calls uh, set to expire and puts. And so this is really where the imbalance is for November expiration. Not only that, if you compare November to December, you can see we're larger than December's expiration. Uh, which tells me there's a little more weight on the equity side here. And then, you know, put in the back of your mind as well that this is January expiration where all those kind of leaps exi uh, exist. You know, they're huge, those positions. They're they're larger than, I think, November and December expirations combined. So that could be a really big turning point that third week of, of January. Just uh, a, um, a couple of questions. So on the, on, the, on the expiration, so we have the market going up here. It seems like we have more calls than puts expiring. I mean, yeah, are those are those the general like criteria in terms of when you see a turning point, like the market's moving in one direction and the ex expiring options are also in that same direction? Yeah. So, well, I mean, if you think about it, just let's just take it down to an individual uh, investor's you know perspective. If you bought a call here at the October you know uh, low in FLMC, you know maybe you paid let, let's say ten bucks for a forty two hundred SPX call right for December or for, excuse me for November. Well, the market rallied five percent through that. So you spent ten dollars on this call, but now that call is worth, you know, two hundred two hundred dollars, right? So the value of that call has grown massively, right? Uh, it's essentially a synthetic stock position at this point. So that's what you really see embedded in this data here is that all the calls that have been positioned have grown tremendously in value because of the equity market rally. That's why there's so many deltas in January because you know people bought leaps last year in December. And the markets just rallied higher, particularly in the mag sevens, right? And that's driving the value of those calls up. And so the the imbalance on this chart is a reflection of the fact that the markets really rallied and the call positions that are out there have grown a lot in value. So on the, on the January expiration, because I know like, I think Jim Kersan has been out on Twitter talking about this is like, that could be a major turning point or he sees a high level of risk there. I mean, do you see the same type of thing when you look at January? Yeah, if you look at, um, if you look at the last, so two years, January of last year and even January the year before, we had significant market rallies and that built up the value of these calls, of January expiration calls because of this leap factor, right? Um, and, and what happened was into that expiration, you have the same thing where when the equity market rallies, these call values get built up and the hedges associated with these call positions should in theory also grow as well. Well, as we get into that expiration, and those call positions are closed, you know, they're rolled out in time. People are monetizing, like, great, my calls are up, you know, if you own NVIDIA calls and, and you're up 500%, you don't want to take delivery of that stock. You just want to take your gains and go. You're going to sell those call positions. You're going to roll those call positions or whatever you may do. You don't necessarily want to get assigned. So before the expiration, people start closing those call positions and it becomes a reflexive feedback loop where suddenly you know, everyone had built up these giant value of call positions. Well, if people start selling those calls, the market comes down and then there's this panic, right? Well, these calls expire next week. I want to get out, right? I want to monetize these things because there's no time left in them, right? Um, and that can lead to selling. So uh, we did a, a, a detailed analysis of, of uh, we called it the, the January OPEX effect. Uh, if you Google that and plus spot gamma, you'll come up with a, a video that really details this. But, you know, it's the ebb and flow of values. It's sort of like, you know, I think we used a house analogy last time that, you know, if, if you think that housing prices are about to crash, well, we all put our house for sale in the market. And then that's a flood of inventory that causes house housing prices to go down. Right. Um, it's kind of the same. You know, it, it's a very similar thing. I'm just curious, going back to the VIX expiration uh, slide you had, 
Does it matter? One of the things I noticed is like sometimes the VIX expiration is before the regular options expiration, which I think it has been. It's it has been in October and November, but I think in September it was maybe reversed. Does that matter at all? Like the interplay between those two? So the, there's two things here which I've had a hard time pulling out of the data. Um, I found recently the VIX expiration being before has been more impactful, and I think that's because how how volatility is hedged. Um, but I also think that the VIX expiration tends not to matter if the VIX is over, let's just say 15, uh, because I think the amount of volatility that's been in the market or that's hedged or the size of put positions, et cetera, tends to be a little bit smaller. So, you know, the, the impact of that uh, is, is a little bit less. So there's kind of a, there's like, it's like a 3D puzzle a little bit. Um, but, you know, this situation where the VIX is pretty large, right? Because the VIX was at 20 not that long ago, and it's gotten pounded here over the last couple of weeks. So I think there's a lot of positions built up. I think there's a lot of flows and forces, and I'll detail this in a couple of slides, you know, helping to push the VIX down and push volatility down. When you do that, it helps to raise the equity market up. The two are intrinsically linked. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think it matters that the VIX expiration here is before uh, equity options expiration. And I think when you talk about, hey, can we get a pullback here because these calls are set to expire? I think the fact that the VIX expiration is before uh, OPEX means starting Wednesday, we could get a little bit of market weakness here. Can you talk a little bit about the, when the VIX goes down, the idea that when the VIX goes down, it can like unleash flows to some degree that makes the market go up. Can you just talk about the relationship at a high level between those? Yeah, I would love to. So the, the VIX is calculated based on S&P 500 index options. And they set a fixed window of time of essentially 30 days. I think it's 27 to 32 days. So they basically take the options that are 30 days to expiration in the S&P 500, and they calculate the VIX based on the implied volatility value of S&P 500 index options. And as we all know, there's a there's a skew built into the price of, uh, of the value of S&P 500 implied volatility, such that puts tend to have a relatively higher implied vol level than calls. This is, goes back to the 1987 crash, and people are generally long equities or long S&P 500, and they'll typically own puts, right, to hedge their portfolio. So, you know, there's a demand equation in there. So essentially what happens is when people start to get concerned about the market uh, and the market starts to move a little bit more, meaning the SPX, uh, the implied volatility or the value of put options in particular will start to go up. And when those put values start to go up, the VIX index, which is calculated from those S&P puts, goes up as well, right? And so that means the VIX is reflecting is 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 reflecting the fact that there's more demand for puts and there's more pressure on the market going down. Um, and when put values increase, we think that dealers on net are short futures, right? To hedge put positions that are in the market. So, so Jack, just to draw the the equation, if you're a if you're a giant hedge fund and you want to hedge your portfolio, you buy 100 puts in the S&P 500 for me. Uh, I'm a dealer. So I'm short 100 puts. I'm worried the market's going to go down. And if the market starts to go down, I need to hedge myself. So what do I do? I sell futures against those puts. And as those puts gain in value, I need to sell more futures. And as the stock market goes down, I need to sell more futures, right? I got to keep up with my hedge, right? So that pushes the market down when I'm selling tons of futures. And then if the market bottoms, or starts to rally, then I got to buy those futures back. That expands volatility, right? It's kind of this trampoline. And I think that's a big mover of this rally into November was there was huge put positions. The VIX was at 20. Uh, we had a little bit of bad data um, in, in jobs, right? Bad data in jobs mean rates are probably not going to go up anytime soon. Powell didn't sort of upset anybody. And then all of a sudden the VIX collapsed, rates dropped. And all those puts got smoked, right? Dealers who are short puts, like I am in this scenario, had to buy futures back in the market rally. Um, so that's sort of the feedback mechanism, right? Between why the value of puts feed into the VIX index and how that links to equity volatility. Essentially, you know, put values increase, dealers have to sell more futures. Then as put values decrease, you buy those futures back. Um, and that's a, you know, you can you can expand on that a little bit, but that's essentially what the mechanism is. And and you know, so everyone knows that knows that the VIX is inversely correlated or generally is inversely correlated to the S and P five hundred. Um, and I think that's that mechanism. It's dealer hedging flows is the mechanism that that really links it to. You have a couple of slides here on the November VIX op, uh, options expiration. Before we get into our what's moving segment, I just want to see if you had anything you wanted to add around those. Yeah. So you know, VIX expiration is also interesting because. 
at VIX expiration, the, the front month VIX future settles at whatever the index level is, right? So the, the two meet. Generally, you have a situation where the VIX future trades at a premium to the index. And so you have contango on that scenario. And as we get closer to expiration, the future gets sold off into wherever the VIX index is. And then we settle. And then, you know, the, the second month VIX future becomes the front month. So what I think happens in these scenarios, and it becomes more obvious when VIX is really high, uh, you end up with this scenario that uh, there are these forces that are pressuring VIX lower, the index lower, and VIX futures are getting sold because as we march towards expiration, which is Wednesday at 9.30 in the morning, uh, the two need to meet, right? And and there's a lot of VIX index positions, as you can see here, particularly at the 15 strike, there's massive put open interest. Uh, and then there's another big set at 14. So, you know, you have these forces in the VIX index put side that I think are pushing volatility down. I mean, they're pushing the VIX down and that supports equities in this scenario, right? Uh, because of all the mechanisms we just, mechanisms we just outlined. What expiration, all these put positions go away. The second month VIX future is, you know, higher, right? I'm, I'm not sure where they are right now, but there's a, there's a premium there. And so the VIX index can suddenly float and volatility can kind of, volatility is not suppressed anymore is the way that I look at it. Um, I think it's being heavily suppressed right now. And then at expiration, it sort of releases and, and it helps to open this kind of window of weakness, so to speak, uh, into equity op op uh, into equity <laughs> options expiration, tongue twister. Um, so the, the, the weakness that I think is coming is due to VIX expiration Wednesday. And then all of these calls are set to expire. So if dealers are long stock against short call positions because everyone's buying calls to bet on a, a rally here or if they benefited from the rally, then the selling of those, uh, unwinding of those hedges should lead to you know, a little bit of equity market uh, weakness over the coming week. Just uh, for, for people who ever looked at those VIX uh, ETPs, like what, what you explained is why those lose 99.9% .9 of their money over really yep. long periods of time, right? If, if everything's sliding back down to the spot, the future sliding back down is why over time, you know, those things just basically burn money. Yeah, 100% uh, to that point. And, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a very fascinating way to, you know, play equity long exposure in those products uh, because, you know, you can have the equity market not doing much, right? The S&P 500 could be just drifting at, let's say, 40 for 100 where it is. But, but that means that realized volatility is coming down, right? The market's not moving. So historical or realized volatility is not doing anything. So the VIX is set to just go down. Vol set to just drift down because the market's not doing anything, right? So, you know, in, in certain markets, I think, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of value to having that short volatility exposure on. Uh, because it can outperform equities in, in certain windows. Now, obviously, you don't want to get short, call it short uh, vol at the wrong time, uh, but you don't want to be long equities at the wrong time either. So, you know, for, for managers who appreciate that risk, I think it's a really interesting tool. So to this point, you know, today's probably the last day where you can really milk the that that short product. The CPI tomorrow, which is probably a non-event, you know, if you, want to, if you want to hold those short products over that. I don't think, I think it's a non-event that equity vol, you, know, you remove some event ball, maybe we chump a little bit lower. Um, but it's been a good month to be short those VIX ETPs and you know, you know, squeeze the last dime out. Go ahead. Yeah, but those are those are always reset a little bit here over the next couple of days. Those are always interesting to me, and they've kind of fixed the short ones. But like, if you go back to the days of XIV, like the the VIX trade was one of the few trades with with the ETPs at least, where no matter which side you took, if you held it over the long long enough period, you lost all your money. Um, you lost it in a very different way. Like in one, you kind of lost it slowly over time, and in the other one, it blew up in one day. But it was interesting. Like both sides of that kind of blew, blew you up, at least historically. Yeah. And now I understand there's a, the SVIX is, is changing its methodology a little bit. I think they're going to start carrying some uh, VIX calls with some of those readings. So I don't know if that's going to change that drag or not um, that, that we're all used to. Um, and the VIX calls, I guess, may hedge it from, you know, essentially possibly blowing up one day. Uh, but just something to be aware of if you trade those products. On the uh, what's moving segment, before we talk about what's moving this month, I wanted to go back to what was moving last month. Yeah. Um, and I think there might actually be some examples of what we've been talking about here, because I think we may have seen some reversals um, in, in some of the stuff that was moving last month, you know, out, out of the expiration. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, we're doing this monthly. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting to say, what did we think last time and, and how did that play out? Um, so, you know, kind of a report card, so to speak. The big thing, you know, last month, was the link between yield and equity volatility. So as, as interest rates were going up, the VIX and equity volatility was also going up. And a lot of the names that were rate sensitive were names that were getting massive options wide. So, you know, TLT, I'm looking at you. XLU was pretty big. Um, you know, a lot of those things were really uh, record calls, right? You know, just blowing 
blowing the records out of the water. Um, and now, you know, we'll, we'll touch on what rates are doing now, just as a, as a, I know many of you are aware, but we'll just sort of touch on that link in a second. The other thing we call the Ozempic Unwind. So, uh, you know, Jack, you touched on that little um, tidbit about Ozempic being from the Wizard of Oz, but, you know, I, I categorize that because there was these, uh, just the XLP names, McDonald's and some of these other, you know, donut companies and stuff were, were very, very weak uh, as well into that options expiration. And then the, the last thing we saw was Mag sevens, there was callers of, of strength in those October highs. Now, what was interesting about this is that after the uh, after options expiration, the market you know slid down pretty pretty sharply, right? Um, right as that VIX expiration went off. But what was interesting to me about this basket of trades that you can see here is that um, here's you know I, I marked October expiration in a red line, so you have XLP uh, in dark blue, you have uh, TLTs in yellow, and then you have Coca-Cola is one of the stocks we mentioned in particular is in, in light blue. You can see that even though the broader market was trading down, uh, XLPs and, and Coca-Cola started to rally before actually, uh, you know, right around that October options expiration, as opposed to waiting for a market low with everything else. And so, you know, you can see where the Fed came out because TLT got a really strong bounce, but, but TLT never, like it drifted a little bit below. You can see its farthest right Y-axis, the TLTs are on 85. Uh, when we were talking about the big positions at 85, and it did go to 82. Uh, this is, of course, the long bond ETF. But, but you know, with the bad jobs report, the, it rallied you know, pretty sharply. It's, it's around 87, 88 as we talk here. Uh, but a lot of these names that were really beat up, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, XLP, they really started to rally after that options expiration. Uh, um, and and then they, they caught an extra shot in the arm, obviously, with the Fed. But, you know, the, that expiration seemed to mark uh, what I would view as, as a turning point uh for for several of these names including you know tlt where we said look the flows in tlt are not enough to move the actual bond market but from a sentiment perspective the fact that people weren't really betting on you know the long long yields going lower than this was a, a very interesting sentiment indicator uh to us yeah so on, on your next slide you, you've touched on this idea that rates and equity vol have become unlinked it was surprising looking at the beginning of this chart i mean they were very very linked for a long period of time and we've we've seen some separation here yeah, and and um, there's a couple of interesting things to note. You know, for for the 20 years I did this, no one for the most part ever cared about a CPI. But then about a year ago, CPI became the hottest data point there was next to FOMC. Um, and now people don't care as much about CPI. But suddenly, what matters are these treasury bond auctions. I guess we just had a nasty treasury bond auction on uh, Thursday, and that caused some equity market weakness, and then that got unwound and. You know, so it's still a quasi rate trade, but you can see here there's a huge correlation between equity uh, volatility and rates. In this case, this is the 10 year. And what's happened now over the last, call it two weeks, is these two have come maybe uncoupled. And this uncoupling could be permanent in that if rates go higher, equity vol will go higher. And I, I think that's a truth that, uh, you know, as close to a truth as you can get in this business. However, if equities just stay, if, if rates just stay pinned or they come down, that equity vol is likely to come down in kind. Now, um, that has a lot of implications for how markets trade, but it's this other interesting idea that I, I think warrants attention in that, you know, we were just talking before about um, how it was a bad jobs number that served for the equity market rally because the bad jobs number uh, showing that people had lost jobs suggests that we can stop raising rates so much. So it, it puts a dent in the higher for longer narrative, right? And so it's this sort of perverse, you know, thought process where bad is good. And, you know, um, a lot of us understand why that is. Uh, but when bad get bad enough, it starts to become about, well, it's so bad now that we have a recession. So, you know, I think what the equity market volatility now is stabilized for the next month, I think. Um, because we have December options expiration and FOMC lineup around the same time. And so I think there's this clear sailing kind of narrative here over the next several weeks because these two have become unlinked. And I don't know that there's an excuse really barring some bad auctions, but I think a lot of the upcoming auctions are very short-term in nature. They're T-bills and, and the like, I think, are the largest ones. Uh, and I don't cover this space, so, you know, uh, you know, th this is sort of the narrative, I think, that's driving options markets. Um and, and so I think we could stage for a nice equity market rally here into that December timeframe because these two have become unlinked and the equity vol is not likely to come and sneak up on us because rates suddenly jump. And if rates jump, then vol is going to go up and the market's going to pressure down. 
Um, and so I, I put in this kind of cute uh, meme about, you know, the rate, the equity vol baton being passed from rates to recession because, and this matters to the name that you trade, and we're going to talk about this in a second, um, because, you know, TLTs and, and XLUs and all these names that arguably were the ones that you'd be worried about in a recession, uh, in a high rate environment, seem like they're kind of the names that you want to own if the recession pops up, right? Like maybe you want to own utilities or long bonds if a recession pops up. Um, and if data continues to be bad, so bad that we're at some point we transition from, hey, great rates are going down to like, uh oh, the economy's falling off a cliff, right? And I understand there's this soft landing narrative, which could work out as well. It's not in my purview to, to suggest, but these are the names that I'm watching for, the recessionary names and how they're reacting and how options positions are forming around these names uh, to help inform us about what's happening into, you know, next year, really. Yeah, and to, to your point on CPI, I feel like whenever there's something, you know, there's always something that's coming out of nowhere that I pay zero attention to in the markets that I got to now, I got to figure out how to pay attention to. So obviously I knew what CPI was, but like yeah. after 2020, I got to figure out like, how was it calculated? I, I didn't know any of that stuff. And then recently it's now these treasury funding announcements, like these quarterly funding announcements. Yeah. And if, if they issue like longer duration, the market goes down. If they issue shorter duration, the market goes up. So like, I got to figure out how those work. So th it seems like there's always something coming out of nowhere in the markets. Yeah, and I, you know, I've maybe this is just a, a really um, naive way to look at it, but you know, this idea that bad is good or good is bad, you know, it 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 just doesn't <laughs> look. It's a it's a function of the financialization of our our markets or however you want to put our dependence on Fed and rate policy, whatever it is. And I just think that once it gets cleared out, and I think it maybe a recession has to hit first. I don't really don't know, but like, hey, you know, the U.S. economy grew, we added jobs. And the, and the stock market goes up. Well, that, you know, like that, then I think we're, that's the sign that we're all clear, right? Like that things are cleared up. We're back on the right path to growth and moving back forward. Um, cause it, you know, it, it, it hurts the brain. You know, we we're, I was joking with someone before. It's like, it's kind of the same way in voting. And I know we're getting way off that, but it's like, we vote for the candidate now that we, you know, we don't want, right? You know, I don't want this guy. So I got to vote for the other side as opposed to, no, I really like what this guy has to say. I'm voting for him. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, definitely. And in the current political environment, I think that's the way it is. Like there's, there aren't any great choices. Yeah. So there's a real center. There's a synergy there between, you know, uh, you know, bad jobs, number of buy stocks and uh, uh, anybody but this person. So, you know, um, anyways. Uh, yeah. So on the, uh, on the what's moving segment this time, um, you know, you've, yeah, you brought up the the mag seven stuff again here uh, in, in the chart, which we looked at last time. And it seems like we, uh, it seems like we're setting, uh, we're setting some all time highs here again. Yeah. And, and what we pointed out last time in options exploration was that, you know, the stocks had rallied to a, a relative high, as you can see on the chart here. And what our point was, is there was a lot of call selling that was coming up at that time. Um, now, you know, what happened after, obviously, is MAG-7, and this is the MGK, uh, I believe it's the Equal Weighted Vanguard MAG-7 index. Uh, you know, they had a really nasty fall here, right? Um, you know, not quite 10%, but caught 8%. Uh, and then obviously, at, after... Uh, really October 31st, huge rally. And we're now back at all time highs in this index. And you have names like NVIDIA, Microsoft in particular, are really leading the strike. And not only is this at the all time, this is happening with Tesla, which is part of the mag sevens at, you know, two, 200. And I think it's all time highs uh, is obviously a lot higher than this. So Tesla's not helping this index whatsoever. And we're nearly at the, at the highs here. So what's interesting at, in this point, as we head into November expiration is that Last time I showed this chart, I know it looks like the matrix here. Uh, these relative shaded areas here that I'm highlighting with my cursor, which is the five strikes. These are option strikes on the x-axis. Um, and then on the y-axis is expiration dates. And so the idea here is that shades of green, brighter shades of green, imply that there is a higher bid to uh, uh, to calls and implied volatility, right? Um so the brighter green areas tells that people are buying calls. Areas of red tell us that people are selling uh, puts here to the left, right? So if this was bright green on the left side, it's a signal that people are buying puts. So in this case, what we have here is we have these stocks back at all-time highs, as you can see here and here, um, but they're buying call options. This bright green tells us that even though we're moving towards call options, People are, uh, even though we're at all-time highs, people are buying call options. So you can see this is November expiration, January expiration, shades of green here. Uh, Microsoft at the top, Google here in the middle, and Amazon at the bottom. These shades of green that strikes above tell us that people are actually trying to buy these highs at this point, which is starkly different from what we had a month ago. Um, so I think this is a major component for 
a year-end rally. I think, again, we're going to get a little bit of weakness over the next week as we reset, but I would be looking to buy those dips or, or use that dip to, to get long some of these names. And I think you want to continue to own these leaders um, based on you know the call positioning that, that we're seeing here. Yeah, on this on this next slide, you got to hit me where it hurts here because uh, we're we're small cap value investors, and you had to you had to point out here that things in the small cap space have not been going that that well. Like I was looking the other day, and it's, the Russell's like more than thirty percent off the high, I believe. So like the, yeah. it, the it's amazing the damage in small caps has been it's just been a completely different market in small caps than than it has been in those large companies. Yeah, one hundred percent. And um, so I'll call you small cap Jack if I can from now on. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I won't do that. Um, I, I thought I included the chart here, but what was interesting in the FOMC was that there was a massive put position in the IWMs and, and Russells. Um, and so FOMC ticks off and you get this idea of a, of a rate relief rally. And the IWMs had, you know, up into the peak here, they had the sharpest of the rallies of the major indices. And that was a huge put shirt cover rally. And what's interesting about it is that that rally is more or less faded. We've lost about half of it. So let's say we rallied 10% uh, to, to early November. We've now given half of that back. Um, but small caps and IDMs are starting to show up on our radar as uh, downside is kind of overbid at this point. Um, and so I think it's an interesting place to sell put spreads and possibly buy calls for a year and rally uh, based on the fact that there's still a decent put position here. And that's enough fuel to help uh, IWMs rally as we clear out some of these puts with November expiration. I think we could get a decent rally here into the end of the year. Now, out past December, I don't really have a view here. I just think that small caps could really catch up and outperform as we saw up this relief rally uh, at the end of, uh, of, of October. So um, that's one thing to, wa to watch because as we have large calls expiring in single stocks and the S&P 500, we have a lot of puts expiring in IWMs. So you, know, you could almost flip them around where we could see some, let's say, S&P or single stock weakness. But Russell 2000 kind of value um, strength uh, right after this expiration. But on net, I think all equities are going to rally into December. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not the expert in the options that you are, but I, I will take that. Uh, anything we can get to uh, say small caps might do a little bit better here. Well, yeah, certainly not... any any vibes we can get, we'll take. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to, to the point before, this this chart here, we call it our gamma tilt chart. And all this is doing is just weighing, and I think I included this chart in our, in our previous talk. This weighs put the total put gamma in the market versus call gamma. And so when you get to the bottom of this chart, the blue line is at the bottom. That's telling us there's way more puts in the, in the IWMs relative to calls, right? So it's a put heavy, put dominated market. And you can see with the rally that we had, how sharply that changed, right? Put, put values got eviscerated and that caused this spike up, right? In, in this metric. And that coincided with a really big stock rally. Well, what happened then is there was no follow through there, right? People didn't continue to buy calls. The puts didn't get close because there's no expiration there, right? The puts are still sitting there. And then so, you know, what you see then is this is, is the market or the IWMs had no support. So the difference here is going to be those November puts are just going to expire. They're going to go away, which I think, again, alleviates some of the pressure and, and we may get a little more of a sustained rally here. So in your next chart, you you looked at crypto, which I haven't been following at all, but I, I think, uh, yeah, there's been some very interesting things going on there. What, what are you seeing in the options there? Yeah, and I'm not a, you know, I don't, I don't know much about the crypto space in terms of, uh, it's not something that I, I cover, but the reason it came up on my radar, and I think it's interesting for, for people on this, uh, on this discussion is that uh, we have some scanners that are set up. And this one in particular is called our squeeze scanner. And we have Coinbase, Mara, and Riot all pop up on our squeeze scanner. Those three are obviously uh, crypto-related names. So, you know, Bitcoin has moved up, uh, and this chart's a little bit longer dated, but I think, you know, Bitcoin was up something like uh, 10%, was it 10%? It went from, what did it do? 35,000 to 38,000, sorry. Uh, you know, in very short order. And, and that sort of bit up these crypto names a little bit. And if it shows up on our squeeze scanner, what, what that's reflecting is call positions are being built up overhead. And so what I find interesting about this is that you can see that for these three names, the largest Delta expiration is in January. Um, what is January 2025? But for Coinbase and Riot, it's January of, of 2019. And so uh, what I think is interesting here is that we could have a situation here with a little bit of equity market strength. Uh, and if Bitcoin particularly breaks out, I mean, these are really fundamentally based on the price of Bitcoin. Um but this could be served for a real area of strength over the next month or two of outperformance, I think, in these crypto names. 
Uh, and I say that not really having a strong view of, of crypto fundamentally. I think crypto vols come down a lot, which makes it, or Bitcoin vol, I should say, has come down a lot, which makes it, you know, uh, more investable from for a lot of people. Uh, but MSTRs, and we saw a lot of call buying in that. That's the, you know, that that's quasi buying Bitcoin at this point. Based, you know, MSTR just holds uh, holds a lot of um, micro strategies called. They they hold a lot of bitcoins, and so uh, look. This came up, and if you're a fundamental investor or a longer-term investor looking at this stuff, I wanted to flag that these names are continuously now showing up on our radar as heavy call activity, um, which means that if the market overall, if this if this sector of the market starts to rally, it could have a lot more upside volatility because of the way that these calls are positioned. So, you know, for example, if you were going to say, hey, look, the beta to the the big these Bitcoin names is typically 1.25. Well, maybe the beta now is 1.5 as a rough example because of the fact that these equity calls are there. So if the market starts to rally and Bitcoin starts to rally, uh, these could significantly outperform expectations as a result of these call positions. This uh this last slide, I was happy you put this in here because this is a question I've always had, which is this idea of a Santa rally. And like and I assume you know we do get it many years, but I assume we don't get it because of a guy rolling in a sleigh. Um, there seems to be some sort of structural thing going on in the market that causes that to happen. And I was wondering if there's any anything in the options market that might explain, you know, why in certain years you do get the Santa rally. I mean, you have a couple of things. Number one is um, there, there are giant options positions and they tend to be larger on the put side that start to decay into December. So this is the idea of, you know, uh, vanity and charm essentially lifting the market up uh, as these puts kind of decay. Um, but the December options expirations work in reverse sometimes where you have weakness as put values increase because the market's crashing. And then those put values are kind of erased with December options expiration and we kind of rally. I think in this play, in this case, um, you know, if you look at way back in the beginning here, we have the balance of these positions. Uh, as you can see here, you know, in this case, this blue line is the put positions that still exist for December options expiration. So this is the part of the of the equation that could decay and help to lift us a little bit. Uh, but the other thing to kind of note here that I think is interesting is that if you look at, you know, S and P is at 4,400, give or take maybe 4,410 as we talk here, um, at 4,500, we have a lot of calls struck for December. 4,550 are also a lot of calls. And over that, the, the call positions really dwindle. Um, and so when I start to look at options positioning as a function of something that could lift the market up and, and kind of pin it down into a certain area, uh, you, you got Thanksgiving coming up, you know, after here. And so we're really like three weeks of trading, you know, to get to that December options expiration. And that area of 4,500 to really sticks out uh, because there's so much open interest there. So if you talk about that options cycle uh, where we rally and positions start to build and positions build up around where open interest is forming, and then we kind of pin into a certain area. Well, that 4,500 to 4,550 is that area that could really become a, a pinning area based on this cycle that we were talking about at the top of the of the discussion. Um, and then, you know, that would be for the S&P 100. And then in single stocks, the fact that people are buying calls, to me, tells me that if we get a little bit of weakness because of just some resetting or some consolidation around this VIX expiration, November expiration, that we're likely to see buyers come in uh, and, and buy those dips, and that should all help the market kind of rally this 4,500 to 4,550 area. The other thing that's interesting is in that zone, I think it's 4,510 is the JP Morgan call that expires at the end of December. So a lot of people love to pay attention to that. So there was a lot happening in that 4,500 zone, uh, 4,500, 4,550 zone into the end of the year. And that, you know, feeds into that big January expiration that, you know, uh, that, that comes up on those charts we were showing. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a great opportunity here for the Santa Claus rally, uh, particularly also because equity vol has unlinked from from rate volatility. So unless some kind of something pops up to spike rates, then, you know, I, I wouldn't think that equity vol has a great reason to go up here because FOMC is also not until basically just before December options expiration. So you can kind of see we got a little bit of a window of clear staring here. If CPI doesn't come in at some ridiculous number or some random data point doesn't come in at some just really hot number that makes rates pop, then, you know, the, there should be a nice tailwind here. And look, that's, you know, 3% rally, which is great for a month, um, you know, but I, I think a pretty reasonable, you know, expectation to have. It's not like we're looking for a 10% rally here over some very short time period. Yeah, on that, on that JP Morgan trade, that's something I want to talk about next month because uh, I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot I don't understand about that. So there's probably a lot other people don't understand about that. And since that's coming up in December, 
that's probably a good topic to put on the on the docket for our December episode. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, we're actually doing a, a call here coming up about call overriding, and I, I bring it up because the same portfolio manager uh, that runs the J.P. Morgan Caller Strategy also runs J.E.P.I. Uh, JEPI, which is the largest ETF, I believe, uh, in the U.S. is uh, $30 billion, I believe it is, and it's call overriding. So he sells a lot of calls over, uh, I believe, a value stock selection. Um, so that one individual is responsible for a heck of a lot of calls getting sold into the S&P 500. Um, and that could affect that the way the market, you know, S&P underperforms mag sevens in some ways, right? So a lot of interesting things we can break down for our next uh, call about this. Well, I hope, Brent, we've produced top 100 content here. Um, <laughs> hopefully we've produced the content we need to, to vault ourselves into the, into the top 100 this time. Well, you've destroyed our chances to our big top 100 in Italy now, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Our, all, all our Italian <laughs> listeners tuned out immediately when I, at the beginning. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and anybody who, uh, who wants to help in, that, in our pursuit of that, and any, any uh, subscribes on uh, Spotify or Apple, definitely help out here. We want to, we want to turn Brent into the top 100 podcast hope he deser- uh, host he deserves to be. So uh, yeah, any help would be appreciated. But uh, yeah, th- thank you again for doing this. This is, this is great for me. I mean, this is something I don't know a lot about. So it's a great learning experience for me every month to do it. Yeah, well, thank you, Jack. And, and I welcome the opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to uh, some of the people that have a little bit longer term views out there. And hopefully we can shed some light on how options flows can uh, help them make uh, investment decisions, right? So um that's the goal here. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you next month. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia